My name is Dan Higgins. I'm a elder here at Grace Church, and I'm really glad to see all your beautiful, shining faces here this morning. I'd like to share some of the word with you, so I'd ask you to listen and hear the word of God. This is from Romans chapter 9, 22 through 29. And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? On us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of armies had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. I ask you to join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd guide every word that comes. I pray that you'd open up the hearts and minds and spirits of each and every one of us here. Lord, you call us to pray for Israel, and Israel is under attack this weekend. So we lift them up to you. Lord, I pray for your anointing on Matthew. I thank you for the fact that we get to celebrate another baptism today. We praise you, Lord, and we pray your blessings in this ceremony today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi. It's good to be back behind this pulpit. So if you haven't already opened to Romans 9, please make sure that you, you get yourself there. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one chairs in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, please take one of those as our gift to you. If you're a guest with us this morning, thanks to those that are joining us via live stream. I love mystery thriller kinds of stories. I think it's because of the surprising turns that they take and often the shocking events that occur at the end of them. I love trying to follow along in the story, doing my best to keep track of the characters in the plot, all the twists that happen along the way, trying not to get lost, and seeing if I can figure it out before it gets to the end. Do you guys like that? I love to try and do that. I think one of my favorite along these lines is Sherlock Holmes. Who likes the Sherlock Holmes stories and even the recent series that have been out there with Benedict Cumberbatch? I mean, how can you not like that? It's a Brit playing a Brit. Just had the sheer joy of reading another one of these stories. This one was called The Case of the Red Right Hand, and it was written by an accomplished author among us, Danny Potter, available at Salida Books. 
The Sherlock stories, and this one by Danny is no exception, have within them, right, if you've, if you've read Sherlock Holmes, they have within them multiple storylines happening at once with layer upon layer and complex characters, numerous twists and turns, all of it coming to a conclusion that I just said is often surprising and shocking. And you wonder on earth sometimes how the story got there when you get to the end of the story. Until, maybe you're like me, you turn the pages back a bit, right? And you're like, oh, oh, that's how that happened. It, it took, and oh, that was the guy. It was there all along. I just didn't see it. I remember texting Danny this very thing while reading her book. I can't believe what you just did there. <laughs> it's really fun to know the author of a story as you're going through the story. And I'm amazed at the ability of authors like Danny to, to hold all the pieces together, to, to hold all the characters and the plots and the subplots to keep us fascinated and surprised and delighted when we get to the end of the story. The passage by the apostle before us is not all that different. We find ourselves smack dab in the middle of a story with some surprising twists and turns along the way. It contains multiple storylines happening all at once with layer upon layer and complex characters, all of it coming to a conclusion that is surprising and some would say even shocking. And just where is Romans 9 in the story, you may ask? Well, it's around 60 AD and a Roman church is filled with Christians but more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. And it is this surprising plot twist that has Paul digging back further in the story to try and make sense of it all, wondering how the author was possibly able to bring the complex story with all its layers and all of its characters to this point in Rome in AD 60. As a matter of fact, you might say, might say that there are multiple conclusion points in this story right here in Rome, one that happens in chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, another that happens in verses 6 to 13, yet another in verses 14 to 23, and yet another in 24 to 29. So let's see where the story has taken us so far. In Romans 9, 1 to 5, Paul has responded with his own surprise, along with Romans, along with the Romans, that his Jewish kinsmen, though a part of the people of promise, are rejecting the Messiah, Jesus. He raises the concern. Just what kind of character is God in this story? I is he just or unjust? Is he a character who keeps his word or not? And how does Paul answer the question? Well, family, this is so instructive and such a great model for us. Just like I had to do with Danny's book and dig back further in the story, Paul goes back in the story to study Israel's history so far in order to understand his place and the place of the Roman Christians in the story. First, he goes all the way back to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to discover that the children of promise who would be saved by, by the Messiah were never defined merely by ethnicity. Rather, they were defined by God's sovereign choice and his calling. Then he moves from that point in the story forward in the story to the Exodus event, finding further Support for the premise that God's telling of the story isn't ineffective or spurious. Oh, no. For God isn't merely a character in the story. 
we find that God is the author of the story. And as such, he gets to tell the story the way that he wants. He creates characters that will experience his mercy and characters that will experience his wrath. He even raises up villains in the story, like Pharaoh, who will serve no other purpose in his story than to make the glory and greatness of God known. In studying the story, Paul is reminded, and he reminds the Romans and us, that God's deepest desire and inclination as the author of the story is to highlight his own glorious freedom to have mercy upon characters who have done absolutely nothing to deserve it, which is one of the most surprising and shocking plot twists of all, if you think about it for a minute. Then Paul moves forward from that point in the story to the prophets, who, for their part as characters in God's developing drama, further explain that what God had said would happen from the very beginning of the story is exactly what is now happening in Rome, clearly seen in the makeup of those who are following the Messiah there in that church. In other words, God's story, his story, has not failed to come true. On the contrary, it has come all too uncomfortably true. Okay, so I want you to look with me now because... This is really fun. (laughs) This is the fun of Bible study. We get to be, see, Paul is kind of like a first century Sherlock Holmes, right? He's going back, digging for clues, trying to understand the story. And now we get to look back at the story in Rome from where we're standing, and we get to watch Paul dig further back in the story, kind of looking over his shoulder going like, hey, what'd you find there? What's going on? What, What do you got for us? And he's going to reveal some answers. Maybe we could call our case the surprising case of Yahweh's mercy. Let's pick it up in chapter 9, verse 22, to see what causes Paul to dig further back to the prophets for clues about the story that God is telling to us. Verse 22, what if God, wanting to display his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? And it's right there that he stops his sentence cut off midstream. That's what that little dash is in most of your translation. I think he's thinking of objects of mercy prepared beforehand for God's glory. It stops him in his track. He pauses as he's thinking about this. Objects of mercy, pondering objects of mercy. You can almost maybe imagine him like Sherlock Holmes walking around his little study in front of the fireplace with a pipe in his hand. I don't know, did they have pipes in the first century? And he's looking off pondering this. And the connection comes clear to him. The shot contained in one mere pronoun, on us. He made known his riches of glory and objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory. Us, says Paul. What a surprising twist in the story. Of course, if I think about it for a moment, he says, it's not surprising at all. In fact, it's quite elementary, dear Watson. You see, this mercy is on us, the ones God also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And then he says, let me, let me show you in the story. Let's begin with the Gentiles. Let's see how they have been shown mercy, how they became objects of mercy. Remember what God said in the story of Hosea. Verse 25, I will call not my people, my people. 
and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Okay, this is just a wonderful example friends, for why we want to learn the Scriptures better and better and why we want to be familiar not with just kind of our favorite bits and pieces in the Bible, but the whole story, which is a lifelong adventure, right? We want to spend the rest of our lives understanding the whole story of God so that we can do like Paul can do when he comes to a bit in the story that he doesn't understand. What does he do? He starts digging back in places where he thinks maybe here's going to be the answer. And the only way that we can dig back like that with Paul is to know where to go in the story, to see the connections. So do you remember what we're supposed to do when a New Testament author quotes the Old Testament? We're supposed to go back and look because that's like a bookmark, right? It wants to take us back into the whole story there in the life and prophecy of Hosea. Now, I really wish that we had, I wish we had about 45 minutes so I could walk you through the story of Hosea so that you could see the plethora of connections that I think Paul has in his mind for why he's going to Hosea to unlock what's going on there in Rome with more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians and what exactly is God doing in the story. But we don't have time for that. So I'd like you to take time this afternoon to just look at an eight-minute video on the Bible Project that will actually, they'll in eight minutes take you through that. We don't even have eight minutes. Let me just give you a summary of the story in the hopes that you'll be able to see the connections and why Paul went there. You see, Paul wants the Romans and us to see that God had foretold what was happening before their very eyes all the way back in Hosea's time, what we would call foreshadowing in today's stories, right? Like you see this little bit and you're like, ah, now I see what you were doing back there. The background to the Hosea text was Hosea's marriage to his adulterous wife. Some of you will remember this story. His wife's name was Gomer. Together they had three children whose names symbolized God's judgment on the unfaithful northern kingdom of Israel. He told them to call their second child a daughter, Loruhamah, not loved, because God said, I will no longer show love to the house of Israel because they're rejecting me. God then told them to call their third child a boy, Loami, not my people, Because, he added, you are not my people and I am not your God. But then in that very story, the whole point of the story was him promising that he would then reverse that very rejection because of their unfaithfulness. In other words, I will always be faithful. And that is the speech of reversal that Paul quotes for us in verses 25 and 26. That recommitment of God to his people. Why is Paul doing that in relationship to the Gentiles? Well, it's elementary. You see, the prophecy and symbolism God is using through Hosea and Gomer and their children is meant to communicate God's promise that his mercy will surprisingly, shockingly turn around an apparently hopeless situation. That he will love again those he had called unloved. That he will call those who were not his people, his people. And you may think that Paul is playing fast and loose with this story because this story is about the Jews, right? And he's saying and applying it to the Gentiles. Well, (laughs) Paul, how can you? That doesn't make sense. 
Well, why don't you give us an example from the story that, that applies to Gentiles? What are you doing? I mean, how can he do that? Because what he's doing is showing you something about the main character in the story. And the main character, see, this is, we keep thinking we're the main characters in the story. And we're not. God is. And that's who he wants you to see. Paul has discovered in the story that God's promise and mercy has a further and good news fulfillment in the inclusion of the Gentiles. As John Stott observes, quoting Paul from Ephesians, the Gentiles had been separate from the Messiah, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in this world. Anybody here Jewish? Raise your hand. Anybody here not Jewish? Okay. This is you. This is us. We were separate from the Messiah, excluded from citizenship, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But God. Now in Messiah Jesus, those who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of the Messiah. Consequently, we are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. The inclusion of the Gentiles is a marvelous and shocking reversal of fortunes for those whom the Jews had assumed were beyond God's mercy. What a plot twist! And are now objects of his mercy. The outsiders have been welcomed inside. The aliens have become citizens. The strangers have become beloved members of a family. That's amazing. That's for us. Paul's reasoning is that Gentiles are the best example possible of not my people. And they become my people. And they do that by answering the call of the good news to believe in God and to believe in the Messiah. And if you're here this morning, or you're on that live stream this morning and you haven't answered that call of God to be a part of his family, to believe in his son Jesus, today could be that day. We'll leave the pump running in the baptismal. We're baptizing another person next week. We'll do this every week. All you have to do is say, I want you to forgive my sins. And I want all the promises that you have, all the promises that you've promised God, I want them to be yes and amen for me in Jesus. And all you have to do is lay down your pride and just say, save me. Have mercy on me. And you could have eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth instead of an eternal life separated from him. But there is another group in the us of Romans 9.25, the Jews. 
and just how are only some Jews objects of mercy, but other Jews objects of wrath? Why should the Romans not be surprised by what seems to be a surprising twist in the story? Well, once again, Paul says, elementary. You see, it was there in the story all along. And to reveal his discovery and solving of the case, he simply turns the page of the story to Isaiah, showing us that Isaiah had long ago foreshadowed this. Long ago, he had cried out concerning Israel that only few would escape judgment and be delivered in hope. You see, Paul's got his fingers in two spots in the story. Have you ever done that, right? <laughs> you get your finger in one spot and you go back. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Okay, you keep your finger. That's what he's doing. He's got his finger back there in Isaiah 10. We see it in Romans 9, 27. Though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Since Yahweh will execute his justice, his words, his sentence, completely and decisively on the earth. Okay, do you see it? Paul has gone back to Isaiah, who himself has taken us right back to the patriarch Abraham in Genesis 22, 17. Right, if you remember the story... Isn't that the promise that he made to Abraham? Your people will be like the sands of the sea. See, everybody in the story is getting in on remembering the whole story. It's where God had promised that his offspring would be as numerous as the sands of the sea. But what Paul knows in the story, what we have seen, since seen in his recounting of it, is that even though there may be countless number of Israelites, there is within Israel, un-Israel, that will get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, a remnant And here's why this past bit of the story is so critical to understanding the current bit of the story. It is that this plot device of a remnant in the prophets has always contained a word, a a story of both judgment and hope. Always. The judgment, here in our text, which is Paul quoting the Isaiah text, is clear. The judgment's clear. Only the remnant of a number of Israelites that number the sand of the seashore will be saved, which demands that most of them will not be saved. Isaiah announces doomsday for most of the people of God. If you go back and read the context of Isaiah chapter 10, you'll read this. Destruction has been decreed. Justice, justice overflows. For throughout the land, Yahweh God of heaven's armies is carrying out a destruction that was decreed to which we say being familiar with Romans 9 oh you will have mercy on whom you will have mercy and you will harden whom you will harden and rightly destroy those who justly deserve your wrath God is speaking the story into existence of executing his sentence Verse 27, completely and decisively on the earth. Which is, well, it should be sobering. He's still doing that. And yet, I believe that what Paul wants us to see, what we should be seeing in the text all along is that God's determination to judge is matched and I think we could even say exceeded by his determination to deliver. 
which is good news. And we see that hope also in our text for a remnant will be saved. Even in judgment, we find God's mercy. Even in judgment, we find him saving some and being faithful despite their faithlessness. Even in judgment, there is hope. And in all of this, we see the character, God, and the character of God doing then what he is doing in Rome, delivering a remnant of those who believe in Messiah even as many do not. This is how he's acted all the way along. It's always been a story of judgment and hope, God doing what he always promised he would in the story since its very beginning in Genesis 3. Namely, what is he doing? He is putting the world to rights, something which will find completion only at the end of the age. And if that weren't enough, there's a final connection, a final layer to make this remnant plot twist of hope and judgment crystal clear. Something that I think he's doing because he's going to come back to this, this twist of hope and judgment. He's going to come back to this in far greater detail in Romans 11. So he gives us one more little quote here from Isaiah chapter 1. And just as Isaiah predicted, he says, if Yahweh of heaven's armies had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So do you, do you see the hope and the judgment again? Hope, he'd left a seed. He left offspring. Judgment, if God had not done that, the judgment would have been as bad as the extinction level event that happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. So, verse 30. What does it say? What should we say then? What should we say? Well, Paul will invite us to think about the answer to that question as we continue our study next Sunday. I think he's going to explain a bit why the Gentiles got in and some Jews didn't. He's going to show each part those characters had to play in the story, the decisions they made for why they got where they were under his writing of the story. So, that's something that we'll hear. We'll hear Paul answer that question. What should we say? He's going to answer that question. But how might we respond to this message of hope and judgment this morning? Well, it just so happens that I've been reading the story of Luke in my personal study of the story of Scripture lately. And this past Monday, I was in Luke chapter 16. Many of you will be familiar with this bit of the Bible, Jesus is telling some stories, go figure. And he gives one about a rich man and Lazarus. Remember this story? And it's actually a story about hope and judgment as well, right? Hope for Lazarus and judgment for the rich man. And in this story, we find a sobering picture of life after life after death. We see what will be after the nanosecond of expiring in this age, right? Like death is just this nanosecond where I take my last breath in this realm and a nanosecond later I'm taking another breath in another realm where I will wait for the coming of Jesus to usher in a new heavens and a new earth and be given a glorified body. 
all death is. It's nanosecond. Well, Jesus tells us that in that nanosecond, Lazarus has been carried away by angels to the side of Abraham. They're experiencing the grace and mercy of God. While the rich man is carried away to live in torment in Hades. And seeing, right, Lazarus and Abraham a long way off, the rich man pleads for what? It's so interesting. He pleads for mercy. This rich man, who couldn't have given a rip about Lazarus in this life, in this age, in this realm, and actually hasn't changed a bit because all he sees Lazarus as good for is what? Serve me. Abraham, would you send Lazarus to dip his finger in water so that he can cool my tongue? Why? Because I am in agony in this flame. It is a story of Lazarus experiencing what he had always hoped for, comfort. A comfort that will never end for Lazarus. And it is a story of a rich man experiencing what he deserved, judgment, an agonizing judgment in flames that will never end. I think it would be good for all of us to wake up, sit up in the bed, throw our feet over the edge of the bed, and before we get moving, think, today could be the day. Today could be the day, the nanosecond of transference from one realm into another realm. It could be the next big reveal in my story could happen today. The question is, which character are you in the story? Lazarus or the rich man? I was listening to an author this week talk about stories, how to write them, the creation of characters and plot lines, reveals, villains and villainy, devices like wish fulfillment, aspects of believability, all of it. And then the conversation turned to how we, all of us, all of us are, are writers, really. And this is really fascinating to me because I've never thought of it that way before. And it's so helpful to how I think about what Paul is saying about God here and his absolute freedom to bestow mercy or to harden. The way that God is telling the story, the way that his son picked up on that story. Because you see, in God's stories, we are all characters, He's the good, all-powerful, sovereign author, and he's speaking out the story, right? He's, he's spinning a complex tale with some surprising twists and turns along the way. Has your story had surprising twists and turns? It contains within it multiple storylines happening all at once with layer upon layer and complex characters coming in and out and multiple twists and turns, all of it coming to a conclusion that is surprising and even at times shocking to us. Like finding out that there's mercy for us. <gasps> what? And we see that God's story is filled with all kinds of characters. 
right? Heroic characters like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Villains like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Peoples like Israelites and Gentiles. It's a story filled with mercy and judgment, love and hate, compassion and punishment, all of it looking for and headed to the ultimate hero of the story, Jesus. Okay, all of it heading to the ultimate hero of the story, Jesus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and God is freely speaking all of it into reality. Telling it exactly the way that he wants. And it's a freedom that paradoxically doesn't remove the responsibility for the characters in the story and the choices that they make. And the story, listen to this, that they themselves are telling You see, that's what the author I mentioned earlier was on about. We are all of us writers. This is is so helpful and convicting and could be scary. We've all been given a certain amount of pages, if you will. We, We call them days, weeks, months, years. We've all been given a certain amount of pages for our story, pages that determine the length of our story, and we do not know how many pages we will get. We do not know when the angels will carry us away to one place or another. And whether we are ready for it not, whether we are ready for it or not, every morning a new page turns, right? A new page that's blank before you have a new page. When you wake up in the morning, a brand new page blank before you. What will you write? How will you fill the pages of your story today? What kind of character will you be? What will your story consist of? Will you be a cautionary tale, a villain, a hero? You see, family, every day we are creating our stories. Every moment is an opportunity to write down the next bit of the story that will one day be told. Every day is an opportunity to look back on, to look at the pages. Isn't this what authors do when they're trying to finish a story? They, what were the pages of yesterday? to look back and turn those pages and see, I could have wrote that bit better. I have another chance today. That interaction with, I could do that differently. And it's sobering to know that the medium that we are using, the pages of life that we have been given, it is sobering to know that they're more like concrete than pages. They're like the concrete that's being poured out front of our house on Poncha Boulevard. They're making these sidewalks, right? And as we, as we write the pages of our story, we, right, it's not like a word processor. When that moment comes and we write that bit, it's gone. I, I don't get a, a blinking cursor and a delete key and like, oh, I didn't like what I did there. No, it would be like my wife was sore. We were standing in the front window this week. I love my wife. They're pouring this concrete, and, and she, she gets this quizzical look on her face, and I look over, and she says, I have this terrible urge to go write my initials in that concrete. <laughs> and if she had, it would set, and they'd be there. The story we write on the pages of our lives are set in stone. So what story will you write? 
What story are you writing? Are you aware that the story that you are writing appears in the biography of those around you? If you are a parent here, are you aware that the decisions for the plot that you make in relationship to your children will forever be a part of their biography? How will they look back on the character called mom, the character called dad? What kind of character are you in the life of your best friend, in the story of your best friend? What kind of character will you be in this church family? It's a remarkable, it's a remarkable power that we have as characters in God's story and yet authors in our own right. And family, I share this with you not to paralyze you. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't want to move. <laughs> it's going to be set in stone. <laughs> but to prepare you, to hopefully inspire you for the rest of this day, for tomorrow morning when you awake, for the rest of the pages that you have been given, that all of us would rightly reflect and understand the preciousness of each page that we've been given, to soberly reflect on the value of that and how fleeting and vapor-like it all is. And it doesn't mean that the story has to be grand or clever or complex or filled with great exploits, but simply a story well told, a life well lived, pages well used. Maybe it's as simple as one of the stories that the author I listened to this week who, who told of his father. He said every once in a while his father would create pajama ice cream runs. So they would put the kids down to bed. They'd, they'd sit in the living room and they'd wait for like 10 or 15 minutes. And, the, you know, they're thinking, oh, they're just, like it's all done. I'm in bed. And they would run into the room and go, pajama ice cream run, pajama ice cream run. And everybody would get into the car in their pajamas and go and get ice cream. Do you think those kids remembered that for the rest of their lives? That's a great paragraph in their story. We have in our house what we call pajama day. And I will declare a pajama day. And we will stay in our pajamas and we will laze about the house and we will watch movies and we will eat popcorn and other food that we shouldn't during the day, in the morning. I don't care. It's pajama day. My kids loved pajama day. What is the story you are writing? Will you declare pajama ice cream runs or pajama day? You know what? You don't have to have kids either. <laughs> I, I, see, I see you silver-haired friends out there. You can have pajama day. What are you going to write? Is your story going to include leaf peeping? Will you, will you embark on a missions trip? Will you give your money to someone to go to unreached Persians in Iran? Will you speak the good news to your neighbor? Will you love your wife well? Will you eat lots of pizza? Are you using the pages well? What kind of character are you? Because, dear friends, our stories, as part of the story, are headed somewhere. There is an end, which, oh, this is the really good part, <laughs> which will really be its true beginning. Maybe you've read, who, who here has read the Chronicles of Narnia? I haven't even read all of them, but I know this bit from the last battle. It's when the long story of the the children in Narnia was coming to an end. This, this quote's in your service guide. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, 
But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Oh, you see, family, this is the great hope that Paul points to as he reads the story, that there is a remnant who will be saved for that. Telling their stories, using their pages in light of that ending, knowing that end is coming. And we all say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And the great warning, worship team, would you come up? The great warning that Paul points us to as he reads the story is that there is also a great throng of those who will reject God's story. And in response, he will act conclusively and efficiently and he will perform the words of his story on earth, ending their story with judgment and agony in the flame. Friend, which character are you? Which story are you telling? What story Are you living and where is it headed?